At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we kick off the new year, we invite you to tune into our current series, The Forgotten Virtue, Learning to Love Again, where we'll discover how God defines love, Christ personifies love, and the Spirit empowers us to love one another. Together, we'll experience healing and hope in the love God designed for us, a love we carry through every season of life. And we're going to be in John for the next number of days. You know, because John has a way of talking to us like we are deaf. He comes back to the same themes again and again. And he says it a little bit differently, just in case we missed it the first time or thought we got it, but really didn't. So by the third or fourth time, it might finally begin to sink in. So here's what he has for us today. To know him is to love him. To know God is to love God. Let's break that down in two points. First, to know him is to obey him. Look at verse three, 1 John 2. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I want to begin by saying that one of the main burdens, themes that John addresses in this letter is the assurance of salvation. This is one of the more common questions that pastors deal with. People asking, how do I know that I'm really saved? How do I know that when I die, Jesus is not going to say to me, depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of evil. It's a very important question. And the first thing I want to say about it is that you can know. You can know. You don't have to go through life thinking, maybe I'm in, maybe I'm out. Look at what John says. He says, by this, we know that we have come to know him. So not only is it possible to know God, it's possible to know that you know him. Isn't that great? This is so important because we live in such an age of doubt. We doubt everything. People doubt that their lives really matter. They doubt that they're really a man or really a woman. They doubt that they can love someone for a lifetime, the same person. They doubt that they can know with any degree of certainty, anything about life or the world. But it's such a great encouragement to know that the biblical writers do not share such an epistemic uncertainty. We can know that we know God. And so then the question becomes, how do I know that I know God? And John's answer is, if we keep his commandments. That's what he says. If we keep his commandments. So notice what John does with that statement. He marries the spiritual and the moral which their culture and ours divorce. So John here by this statement is marrying. You, can, you, you know that you've come to know him, God, if we keep his commandments. That's what he's marrying here. You know, in the Greco-Roman world, there were these mystery religions that said that you could have access to God through visions, through rituals, through certain mystical experiences, through incantations and all kinds of things like this. And what these experiences would do is they would give you access to the divine, access to the spiritual realm, the realm of the gods, and it would give you certain special knowledge of our world. Now, 
these experiences and how spiritual you were had nothing to do with your ethics. Your morality did not hinder or help your spirituality. In fact, in paganism, there were prostitutes that would be priests or priestesses. You understand? So profane sexual activity was seen as spiritually enriching. And it's some form of this kind of aberrant belief system that John writes and speaks against. John minces no words. He comes right out and says, you know that you know him if you keep his commandments. If your morality matches the holiness of God, you know him. If your morality does not match the holiness of God, it doesn't matter what sorts of claims you make. It doesn't matter how many kinds of spiritual experiences you've had. You do not know him. Now, Notice that John is not the first one to marry our spirituality with our morality. Far from it. It's all over the Torah, the prophets, Jesus and the gospels, and the apostles themselves. It's all over scripture. Let me give you just one reference from the prophet Hosea. Listen for this marriage of our spirituality and our morality. Hosea chapter 4. The prophet says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. What is the controversy? There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. The Lord has a bone to pick with Israel. He says there's no faithfulness, no steadfast love, no knowledge of God. In other words, their spirituality is bankrupt. Why? Because their morality is bankrupt. He says they're swearing, lying, murder, committing adultery, shedding of blood. And so we know that we know God if we keep his commandments. And so now that John has introduced this category for us, he proceeds to give us three claims that people make that can be empty because talk is cheap. So the first, we're going to look at all three of them. The first claim is in verse four. Look at what he says. Whoever says, so this is something people are claiming. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Let me ask you, do you say, I know God? Are you lax in keeping his commandments? Because John says, liar, the truth is not in you. Then in verse five, he says, Whoever keeps his word. So it's not just his commandments that we're to keep. It's his word, all of it, which includes his promises. As a matter of fact, the reason that any of us do not keep God's commandments is because we don't believe his promises. We don't believe that he is who he says he is and that he's going to do for us what he says he's going to do. No, and so we give ourselves to sin because we think that in it, there's more life. But John says here in five, whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. We would have expected John to say, 
whoever keeps his word, God's truth is in him. Because that's what he said before. If you keep his commandments or if you don't keep his commandments, God's truth is not in you. But that's not what he says now. Now he says, as we keep his word, God's love is perfected in us. Why? Because it's all related. It's all the same thing. If we know God, we're going to have his truth, which means we're going to have his love. We're going to love him because to know him is to love him. For God's love to be perfected in us, in essence means that God's love is completed in us. It's not that we're perfect. Rather, it's that God's love in us is doing what it's supposed to do. It's kind of like when you're eating a burger, right? And you're eating the burger and you're saying, I'm finishing a burger. You haven't finished it yet, right? Some of it is in your hand. Some of it is in your belly. But you're finishing the burger, meaning that by the time you're done, it's all going to be in here, right? That's what he's saying. If you know him, if you are actually passing this test, then God's love is perfected, completed in you, meaning that God's love has already begun the work that's supposed to do in you, and it's going to take it all the way to completion, That's the first claim. If we know him, we will keep his commandments. The second claim is in verse six, but look in the middle of verse five. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So the claim here is that we abide in Christ, that we remain in him to remain in him, right? And what what the claim is that, hey, I'm remaining in him. And what John says is, if that's true, if you're remaining in Christ, then you're going to walk as he walked. This is very interesting because in our secular culture, we know that people who do not know Christ don't really have a, a category for Jesus as savior. At best, they see him as a teacher. They feel no obligation to do what he says because they're not committed to following him. It's just that some of his teachings, some of the time rings true to them. So they have no category for his saving power. They'll just say, oh, he's an inspiring teacher. I like when he says X. The catch, what's tricky here though, is that for us who do believe in Jesus as our savior, many times we fail to take him seriously as our teacher. But if he's our savior, he must be our teacher because he only taught us about the things that, about about who he is and walking the way that he walked. And here John is saying, if you're going to say that you're in him, you must walk like he walked. So let's do a test, shall we? Let's do a test on how seriously do we take Jesus as our teacher, as our rabbi. So four things. We could do dozens of these. Just picked four from the gospel of Luke. First one, fasting. Luke chapter 5, verse 35. This is Jesus, your teacher. Here's what he says. The days will come when the bridegroom himself is taken away from them, his disciples. And then he says, and then they will fast. So question, here's the test. How are you doing with fasting? Is this something that's a part of your life? Because your teacher, Jesus, expects us to do it. He's saying they will fast. Now, at the end of today, at the end of the message, I'm going to ask you 
to fast at some point in some way in January. Your notes from the weekend tomorrow in the email uh, are going to give you some instructions on fasting. But I just want you to start thinking about how am I going to fast in the month of January? And I'm going to give you a, a reason as well, a purpose for the fast. So that's the first one, fasting. Second, exclusion. Luke 6, 22. Here's what Jesus, your teacher, says. Blessed are you when people hate you. And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the son of man. So here's the test. How intensely, how closely have you been standing with the son of man that others revile, exclude, hate you? And do you see it as a blessing? Number three, riches. Luke 6, 24, Jesus, our teacher, here's what he says. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. So here's the test. How deep does the desire for riches go in you? Do not skip over that too quickly, because that is the very thing upon which the American dream is founded. And we're all, most of us here, Americans. And then finally, giving, which takes us in the opposite direction of the desire for riches. So here's what Jesus, your teacher, says, Luke 6, 34. Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount, but lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. So here's the test. How open-handed are you with your money, with your house, with your car, with your things? You know, Tertullian, the, the great early church father, said about Christians, we share everything except our wives. Isn't that great? That's a great description of us. We're open-handed with everything. Save our spouses, of course. So good. But how'd you do on the test? How seriously do you take Jesus, your teacher? To know him is to obey him. Number two. To know him is to love his people. Here's our final point. To know him is to love his people. Verse seven, beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Okay, so now John ratchets up this test of our faith by how we love one another by how we love the people of God. You see, this is very important because it's all too easy for us to define our Christian walk negatively. That is by the things that we don't do. And so going back to Hosea, we might say, hey, I'm a Christian, which means I don't swear, I don't lie, I don't commit adultery, I don't murder, I don't shed blood. So I'm a Christian, I don't do those things. Hey, that is good and true, but utterly insufficient. 
which is John's point precisely. He begins by saying, I'm not giving you a new commandment, but an old one, although at the same time, it is a new one. And we read them, we're like, okay, John, which one is it? Is it an old or a new commandment? And he would say both. You see, you remember in the gospel of John, same writer, in chapter 13, on the week when Jesus is betrayed and killed for us, that in the upper room, he gets on his knees and he washes the disciples' feet, a task that was for the most, you know, the most menial of tasks for the lowest of servants. And after he does that, which was a demonstration of his lowliness and his love, he says to his disciples, the 12 that are launching the church in just a few days, he says to them, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Guys, this is the new commandment of the Christian faith. This is it. You're trying to boil it down to one. It's a commandment that we love one another. And by that, he doesn't just mean love your spouse. That's included. Love your children. Yes, included. He means the church. Love my people, my family. This is how the world will know that you belong to me. Well, that was a new commandment. But by the time that John is writing toward the end of the first century, that new commandment has been in circulation among the churches for a few decades, 50, 60 years or so. So that it's in, in, a, in a very important way, it's an old commandment. And yet, in a very important way, it is new. Because the command to love one another always remains new. It's something that we're always to do freshly for each other. It's something that Jesus does through us each day. Love is to be expressed, shown, real, true. It's not just feelings. Oh, I, I love the homeless. Okay, serve them. Ooh, um, okay. John will not allow us to define our faith negatively by the things we refrain from doing. There are all kinds of people that follow all kinds of good moral codes that have nothing to do with Jesus. It's not what makes us a Christian. John so intends. Here we have the third claim that people make that could be empty. Look at verse nine. He says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Can we hear that? We might go like, oh, finally, so good. That does not apply to me because I don't hate anybody. There might be some people that I don't particularly like, like Democrats or Republicans, but I don't hate anyone. That's way too strong. Woof, uh-uh, <laughs> that is far too easy and out. No, 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 go to chapter three in 1 John. Read this with me. We're familiar with John 3.16. Let's read 1 John 3.16. It's almost the same verse. Here's what he says. By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Listen to me. John defies hate, defines hatred as the lack of expressed love. Have you ever closed your heart to a person in need? 
I think what comes to our mind more, most readily is the homeless that we see on the street, right? Because we're driving and they're there and we see their plight. We're like, oh, I can't do anything. Oh, I wish I could. Or sometimes we do. And, and that certainly has an application, right? Uh, especially with the warming center coming to our doors today, tonight. So yes, there's an application there, but we cannot stop there. The first thing that John says here is whoever has the world's goods, And if there is a people who's ever had the world's goods, it's us, 21st century middle-class Americans. We have homes, we have heat, we have food, we have clothes, we have shoes, we have education, we have social networks. We have an overabundance of skill. The amount of skill just in this room is staggering. And so our first obligation is to say, that's me. I have the world's goods. And when we realize that, the next thing that John leads us to is then to see our brother in need. See the person in need. Yes, the homeless, but don't stop there. See the single mom without a community. See the young person without a godly paternal or maternal role model. See the baby Christian who thinks an epistle is the wife of an apostle. They don't know anything. See the struggling marriage that might not be together by the end of the year. See the billions of people who don't have the gospel. See, see, see. John starts talking about the darkness. You know what the darkness does? The darkness makes us blind. The darkness makes us close our eyes. And as the world's goods increase to us, which is what drives so much of how hard we work. You know what we do naturally? We retire into our cocoons of comfort. We start padding our lives, our existence, everything bigger and better. Oh, so good. I've worked so hard for this. And what John says is, no, the darkness would lead us to close our eyes. Not the love of God. So open your eyes, open your heart, he says. If you have the world's goods, then see. The needs are all around us and we would only look. And then he says, when you see them, do not close your heart to need. And so start. Start listening to what God is going to send you into this year. What kinds of works he has for you, for us collectively. Start. Start right where you are. Start small. Do not stop. Do do not just be like, oh, no, I don't think I've really heard from God. He's active. He will speak to you. He will impress your heart and ours if we will listen. And his power and presence and peace will see you through. It just will. And so John wraps up this whole section by talking about light and darkness. He says that if we're growing or if we are not growing in love, then we're still in the darkness and we are walking in darkness and the darkness has blinded us so that we don't even know where we're going. You see, John says the evidence that we are in the light is not when we say, I'm in the light. That we're in the light is the degree of our love for our brother, for the people of God. And if we're going to listen to John well for the next month, then we need to understand very clearly the distinction between cause and evidence. This is so important. Cause and evidence. What's the cause of something and what's the evidence that that something has happened? Because John doesn't say, if you keep his commandments, you will know him. 
He says the reverse. If you know him, you will keep his commandments. We cannot get those two mixed up. I've talked to some of you just in the, this last month. And as you've done, I'm like, oh no. They believe that if they do these things, they'll come to know God and God will be good to them because they're doing all these things. No, 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 that's not the gospel. So it's very crucial that we get this straight. So let me give you an illustration. When you buy a house, you buy your house, so excited, and you move in. And as you move in, you start doing things to the house. You start painting all the walls. You upgrade the kitchen because it still has that 70s nasty wallpaper, you know. You tear down a wall to open up a whole room. And you're doing all of these things, right? And as you do those things, people who see you do that, they know that house is yours. Because you don't do those kind of things when you're renting a place. That, that house is yours. Ooh, a pink living room? Interesting. But okay, that house is yours, right? Here's what they do not say. All of those things that you're doing are evidence that the house is yours, but no one would say that painting the house and upgrading the kitchen and tearing down a wall is what makes the house yours. That's not what caused it to be yours. What made it yours is that you paid for it. Okay, likewise, John puts an enormous focus on the evidence that we have come to know God. He puts so much emphasis on the evidence that we know God. In other words, he puts the focus so much in this letter on the things that we will do as a result of knowing God. Things like keeping his commandments and not closing our heart to the person in need and loving, not hating our brother and walking as Jesus walked. He talks about these things. He leaves little wiggle room for someone who makes all kinds of claims saying, oh, I know God, I know Christ for sure. And their life doesn't show it, but do not confuse belonging to the family and what makes you belong to the family with the evidence that you belong to the family. What makes you a part of the family? Jesus Christ. That's it. It's him. It's what John's been talking to us in chapter one. We didn't read it today, but do that on your own. He tells us he's paid for our sin. He cleanses us from all sin as we confess it. He tells us that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not just ours, but the sins of the world. There's only one way to salvation and it's through Jesus Christ. The house is yours because you paid for it. Salvation is yours because Jesus paid for it. Don't get confused because where John is so helpful to us that we're going to be looking at for the next month is insane to us. If Jesus has paid for your sin, if he's cleansed you from every sin, if he's made the Lord God propitious toward you, favorable toward you, rather than justly wrathful against you, then your life will look a certain way. Let me spell it out for you. That's how John talks to us in this letter. And it brings me back to what we talked about in the beginning, because I do believe that God has a certain expectation of our spiritual maturity. I think that there are things that you thought were okay in your walk with God, but he's gonna start opening your eyes and saying to you, repent. I have more for you, more of me, more of my promises, repent, turn. We cannot remain infants in Christ forever. 
What defines us as a church are three things, our Sunday gatherings, our life groups, and serving. And so for the next three weeks, I wanna say something about each one of those things, one at a time. And so today, I'm gonna leave you with one area that needs our attention, our prayer, our fasting concerning the Sunday gathering. There are many in our body that have not been to church for almost a year. Now I know that you're following along from home online and I'm so, so glad that we can do that for you. So glad that we can do that. But you watching our gathering from your home is not the same as you being right here with us, assembling together as scripture commands us to do. It's just not the same thing. The first demonstration of our faith in the Lord Jesus and our love for his people is that we gather together to testify to him. That's the first. It's not the only thing we do. It's just the first. It's the one from which everything else that the church, the body of Christ does springs from. Now, please hear me out. I know the virus is real and serious and we're not out of the woods yet, not even close. And so wisdom is required and caution warranted. And I would not even dare say to you that I know when you, you and your family should come back to church. You need to wrestle that out with your God. What I am appealing to you about with every inch of conviction that I have from the gospel of Jesus Christ is that you not lose your urgency your conviction, your God-given scripture-demanded priority that the body of Christ must assemble and come together to testify to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's what makes us the church. And you watching our gathering from your home, it's not the same. Listen, I understand that you want to be wise and I commend you for it. But I also know that the devil wants to steal your faith. And we are commanded in scripture to not be unaware of his schemes. There's a message he's been preaching to you for almost a year now. Stay home. You're not missing anything. Don't live by faith, live by sight, by what you can measure, what you can control. There are certain things you must do in this season to stay alive and healthy and church is not one of them. Have you begun to believe that? Any part of it? Remember that there are brothers and sisters throughout the world who risk their lives on a weekly basis just to come together as the body of Christ. So I'm not saying to you, be back here next week. I am saying to you, in your soul, do not lose the urgency, the conviction, the priority that we as the body of Christ must assemble to testify to his life, death, and resurrection until he returns. And we're to do so all the more, not less, as we see the day drawing near. So I wanna call on all of us, those at home and us who are here to pray and to fast in the month of January about this very thing because this is a matter of great concern for the body of Christ 
at this hour. We're about to take the Lord's Supper. The meal that we take together as the body of Christ. The meal that binds us as one body, worshiping one Lord. The meal that many of our brothers and sisters have been missing for almost a year now. Not taking it together with the body of Christ. And the effects are not small. So I want us to beg our God to bring his body together once again. Let's pray. Yes, Lord. What a privilege it is for us to assemble together as the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word that feeds us and your precious bride that shows us the real power and presence and rule of the Lord Jesus in this age. Thank you. Thank you, Father, that you have sustained us and preserved us as your people. Father, right now we come to you and beg you to bring your whole body together once again. Perhaps the biggest toll from COVID is the many who have lost their faith. Father, I know that you have people who've been home all this time whom you can preserve by your grace. I pray you keep them strong. And I pray that you, by your spirit, would speak to them. Give them conviction from you that they may discern what you're saying to them as it relates to the Sunday gathering. Father, I pray for all of us that we would not fail these three claims that can be empty and yet made by Christians so easily. But let our lives, our lifestyle, back them up. We do not want to be deceived. We do not want to cheapen the name of Christ. We take him, live or death, seriously as a savior and as a teacher. We thank you, Lord, for his body given for us, his blood shed for our sins. We thank you for the blood of the new covenant by which you have taught us to love you and to love one another. In his name we pray. Let us take the bread, the body of Jesus given for us. Let us take the cup, the blood of the Lord spilt for the forgiveness of sin, the blood of the new covenant. Oh Lord, how sweet, how sweet the taste of grace. Grace flowing to cover us 
from first to last. Grace that will carry us home. Lord, we are here to testify to the power of the cross, to the power of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our teacher. In his name we pray. Amen. Let us stand up and sing. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.